Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas and stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium and in any genre. We hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew goes to the movies. We're looking at what happens when our favorite books are adapted for the big screen, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Over the course of 10 episodes, we'll be discussing the similarities and differences between the two mediums and what distinguishes a successful adaptation from a real stinker. So grab some popcorn and enjoy the show. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to yet another episode of Bibliophiles. Good to see your smiling faces today. How are we doing? Doing great. Hanging in there. Hanging in there indeed. We've watched a lot of movies in the past few yes. years. Yes. I know. I'm getting a little movie out. <laughs> oh, oh no, I'm I can get used to this. Definitely not. I'm not movie <laughs> <Yeah>. out. <laughs> You're not movie out. No, but I, I, I have run out of tissues, so I might need to go get some more. Dude, you're not kidding. There have been some weepers in this whole selection, haven't there? They really have. I mean, I cried my way through Little Women, and I kind of, I don't know, I, I gathered myself in The Great Gatsby, but today's is, <laughs> has made me cry a lot. So. Yeah, raise your hand if you cry. Did you cry in today's selection? Yes. Oh, yeah. A bit. Absolutely. A bit. Emily? I... Emily's heartless. Just kidding. <laughs> Emily's not a crier. <laughs> Emily's Scotch-Irish. They don't cry for much. They don't cry for many things. Well, today's selection is the the great, the legendary To Kill a Mockingbird, which I confess I hadn't seen until this last week. What? Are you uh, serious? Amazing. Yeah, no, I've never seen it. Possible? I don't know how that happens. I don't know how you grew up with our mother and made it made it out without that one. Well, I didn't make it out without reading the novel multiple times. Yeah, it's probably because I didn't want him to see the movie before he read the book. Right. Yeah, okay. this might actually be the the genesis of my distaste for watching movie adaptations I don't before know. reading novels. What I learned from our last conversation is that Ian basically pirated all of the movie selections for the whole family all the time. So he probably just didn't want to watch it. He just watched whatever <laughs> very he wanted. strong personality. He was a very strong personality. I was. I've since come to meekness as a habit. I feel like your little brother came up to you at one point in time and asked, Teach me your ways. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he thought you could do anything. You actually, maybe you can. We haven't really discovered it yet. <laughs> oh, no. Well, what I couldn't do is make it through To Kill a Mockingbird without springing a leak. I was, I was crying at a certain point, for mm-hmm. sure. From the boy that cried through the dog of Pompeii. <laughs> of course you cried. Okay, okay, all right. <laughs> the bar is low. I'm a weeper. I'm a weeper, so it's out. I'm a weeper. So, Mom, you're in the hot seat today, as this is your favorite novel. I actually thought in the beginning about, because obviously we were in a, in a podcast about literary adaptations for the screen. There was no way we weren't going to include To Kill a Mockingbird, considered by lots of people as the crowning achievement of directors adapting novels. And yeah, so I, I thought to myself, we have to, we have to include this one. And I toyed with the idea of giving it to someone else just to see what would happen. <laughs> I wanted to see the fire come out of my I watched eyes. the process by which she wrestled it back. Right, no. exactly. <laughs> or the process by which she hijacked it and said, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no. This is my favorite story ever. I will be the one discussing it. Uh, so with that, funny. Mom, please, um, how did you come? What, well, what is your experience more broadly with this story? And what induced you to watch a film adaptation given your, well, moderate distaste for such enterprises in the first place? 
Well, that's an overstatement. I, I wouldn't say that I have a <laughs> We're moderate on a podcast. Distance. Podcasts are for overstatement. Okay, it's true. It's, it's for overstatement. <laughs> and I, I get your point and everything. I, I'm, I was trying to remember the first time I uh, came across To Kill a Mockingbird, and I'm pretty sure I was grown. I think I was an adult when I finally read this story. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I'm Perhaps appropriate, sure. given its tone. I yeah, know. I was an adult when I finally read this story. It's often assigned in high school classrooms, but not in my high school classroom. It sure hits different when you're a grown-up, though. I'll say. Yes, absolutely. So, so yeah, I read it in early marriage, early parenthood, and then I have taught it several times to high school classes as a part of a, a study of American literature, modern American literature. And I think it is, it is just the pinnacle of American artistic achievement as a novel. Harper Lee's efforts were they were widely heralded in her own time and rightly so. Mm-hmm. Um, the screen adaptation of her novel was done in 1962 and she was very involved in the production of the film, which explains, I think, why it was so well done. She had a lot to say about it. It won three Academy Awards. But was nominated for more than that, I thought, right? Oh, yes. Like for eight, I think. Yeah. Maybe eight more. It won three and was nominated for eight more or something like that. But uh, it won Best Actor. Gregory Peck is mm-hmm. Atticus Finch, of course. Best Screenplay Adaptation, it was done by Horton Foote. And Best Art Direction by Alexander Golitsyn, Henry Bumstead, and Oliver Emmerich. Those are some household names, yeah. folks. Those are take some household names, but they deserve a mention because the artistic elements of the of the presentation on the screen really did help to make it what it was. Yeah, I was really helped by by the visual of Scout in a ham. I couldn't quite get my head around that as a kid and now I can't. <laughs> no kidding. I, the <laughs> I same was thinking thing. more of the the montage at the beginning. Yeah. Mm. Right. Uh, the opening montage. Very lyrical, very artistic. You got this child humming to herself mm-hmm. and the lyrical theme that's a piano theme uh, playing intermittently as the child's playing with crayons and drawing and playing with toys some of which are featured later in the film and gain significance mm-hmm. yeah that was so, beautiful yeah it was very beautiful so this is a straight across adaptation right harkening back to our first conversation this isn't one in which the director is conversing with the author and saying yes and or trying to apply the story's themes to their own time and place. This is pretty much a shot for shot well, remake. It sounds like because the author was involved, right? In, in some ways, it's still the product of the original author. Right. Yes, yes. And the picture does telescope the story. I am going to argue necessarily. What do you mean telescope? Yeah, what does that mean? What I mean is that when you're doing something, when you're putting a novel on the screen, you have to pick and choose which elements of the story to include because you can't do a line for line, a line for line retelling of the story. There just isn't time. So I think they did a a fabulous job giving the limitations of the art form that they were working with. A movie just isn't a novel. And I'm going to keep arguing that <laughs> throughout this entire no podcast. One's, no one's trying to say they are. We're also just not I just putting them in a hierarchy. I have in the back of my mind. I just want no. to say, I want to have it be on the air that one of the ideas for the name of the season that we threw out there was movies are books too. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I say really a love. resounding, no, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> 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 Pete 
Peter Jackson says, hold my beer. With that being said, let's talk about what they did right in this particular Yeah, movie. yeah, please. And I mentioned that they got three Academy Awards. They also got a Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture. And Peck got a second Best Actor that same year from the Golden Globe Association. So the casting of the movie was absolutely superb. We get Gregory Peck as Atticus Finch. I don't think that anybody who reads the book can imagine anybody but Gregory Peck <laughs> in this particular role. He Actually, I'll back you up on that. Not having I hadn't seen the film like I said until this very week and still I'd seen enough pictures of Gregory Peck in the role that that was the guy in my head when I was reading the as story you were reading. as a kid. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. I read it as a kid, didn't know anything about the movie, never saw the movie till I was an adult and read it several times as a kid and that was not my experience. You didn't you didn't when think was, he was cast well? Well, it's not that. It's that when I saw Gregory Peck walk in as Atticus, I thought, "Oh. Okay. Huh. Yeah, that works." But I had a picture of Atticus very firmly in in my head from being right? a kid that wasn't Gregory Peck. Well, yeah, vivid. Really I mean, it's he's a really vivid character in the in the novel. It doesn't surprise me. Let right. me ask you a question. In your mind's eye, was he older than Gregory? Older Peck? than Gregory Peck? Mm-hmm. Mm, at least as old. He was definitely old in my in my head. Yeah. I wonder if that's a feature of how old you were when you read the novel, because reading it as an adult, it makes sense. Because I feel like a kid, therefore parents are kids, right? Yeah. But like. If, as a kid, all adults are old. Right. <laughs> yeah, but in the story, he is one of the oldest parents in town, and yeah, the, it makes uh, Jem mad. Yeah, Lee he won't makes come down from the treehouse. Exactly, exactly. Because he won't play football with the other parents. Yeah, with the Methodists. With the Methodists. <laughs> with the Methodists. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he was a great choice for Gregory Peck, and I'm not alone since he won two Best Actors for the role. Right. No kidding. <laughs> they also cast Robert Duvall as Boo Radley, the introvert who lives on the corner and who the kids have, oh, their imagination goes wild. They basically think he's a monster and they spend all summer trying to get him to come out. <laughs> Hence, Boo, right? We get Mary Badham as Scout and Philip Alfred as Jem. Rosemary Murphy plays Maudie Atkinson and James Anderson plays the wicked Bob Yule. I, uh, the guy we love to hate. He was in the he story. was good. Yeah, he was yeah. good. He did a really yeah. great so job I think with that role. The casting was so well done that I think it's one of the reasons that the movie succeeds. Uh, every one of those actors and actresses just turned in stellar performances in these roles. In addition, I mentioned the score by Elmer Bernstein, and something about its its well, its piano, single piano playing, and it's very lyrical. Something about how simple it is. They're tiny. I think periodically there's a flute segment that comes in too, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Anyway, they've done a fantastic job with the piece of evoking innocence and yeah. just the vulnerability of childhood, which are both very fundamental elements of Lee's story. Also, as I was listening anyway, I thought the flute kind of sounded like a bird. So oh, yeah. it was a little bit of the Mockingbird theme in the background, which was really beautiful. Sure. Yes, sure. absolutely. I hadn't thought of that, but you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. I, I think it certainly sets the mood for the story. And, you know, they could have gone too far that direction and turned it into a horror pick. Mm-hmm. A lot of times there there are elements like that in horror movies. But this one just develops a kind of poignancy and a, a gravitas on the one hand, because all of these horrible things that transpire in the movie transpire in the lives of these children, right? 
But simultaneously, it creates a kind of sunny atmosphere because childhood is a time where um, you're kind of unselfconscious and you're going about your your days kind of running free in the neighborhood. And, and certainly that's a big part of this story and one of the reasons why everybody loves it so much. So the, the music was very evocative mm. of both things. Mm-hmm. In addition to this opening montage I already mentioned, there's this opening voiceover, the adult narrator, Jean Louise Finch, who is Scout, right? Talking about Makeham. And they've lifted this section, the dialogue, right out of the original story. I was so glad they did. I loved that oh, passage. Me too. About me the women, too. like, covered in sweat and sweet talcum. Yeah, they're like soft tea cakes uh, with frosting of sweat and sweet talcum, she says, yeah, one of my favorite lines in the story. And so they did a nice job of establishing the kind of narrative voice that's present in the story, because in the story itself, you get an adult um, retrospective of this time through the eyes of Jean Louise Finch, who is a scout in the story. And so in the in the actual narrative, in Lee's narrative, the result of this is the wisdom of age, but then still it's, it's still Scout telling the story. And as she goes back and remembers the childishness, the unpretentiousness, the, the, um, the, the wisdom of youth, right? Comes yeah. through. And it's strange to say the wisdom of youth, but it reminds me of Wordsworth, the child is father of the man, right? Mm. We get that element in Lee's story because it's out of the mouths of babes. You get these, these, these comments that just cut right to the heart of the matter and expose the intentions of the people in the story so mm-hmm. that they can see themselves. Like in that beautiful, beautiful scene on the steps of the jail when the mob comes in order to, to try to lynch one of the characters that's in jail, Tom Robinson. Robinson, Yeah. And the kids see it happening. Jim's kind of out seeing what's going on with his dad and they run up and stand between dad and the mob and won't, won't leave. And in the middle of it, Scout with her tiny little voice looks out into the, to the mob of men. She doesn't really know what's going on. And she sees somebody that she knows that has been working with Atticus. Atticus has been basically doing free work for him on an entailment. And she says, well, how are you doing, Mr. Cunningham? Don't you remember me? Your son, Walter, and I go How's to school together. How's your entailment coming along? Yeah, your entailment getting along, right? And just starts a little polite conversation in the midst of this very tense lynch mob scene. By the way, oh, I'm sorry, Missy. I'm oh, no, please go ahead. When I was a kid, I didn't know what entailment was. My first encounter with the word entailment <laughs> is to kill a mockingbird. And I thought it was an intestinal condition. <laughs> How's your entailment? Well, it hurts like the devil. Thanks for asking. <laughs> can I well, get you a thumbs for that? You get the sense that she's not sure what it is either, but she's being polite and she's asking, right? And then she's afraid because there's such silence that she has said something she shouldn't say. And she's, well, I didn't mean any harm. And the whole, her insertion into that moment really does land the heft of a lot of the thematic ideas in the story proper. Because it's here she is as a kind of mockingbird in the story. And what is the mob going to do with the mockingbird, right? It, it shows the significance of the mockingbird and the significance of the innocent working on a crowd that's thoughtless, right? Yeah. I had a question about that because when I was watching, and th- this didn't occur to me as much reading the novel, but when I was watching the film, they do so much with silence, Mm-hmm. especially among the adults. There's so many conversations happening under the surface of the story that never get put into words. Um, conversations between Atticus and the, the county police sheriff and conversations between Atticus and Ewell, the villain. 
so much of that is tightly under wraps and under the surface. And I couldn't tell if it was if it was period appropriate because there's been a heavy emphasis on politeness in the culture that we're watching, right? Um, there's the, the old woman sitting on the porch next door who's got a who's got a Colt 45 in her lap and, and she'll shoot you right, right. look at you. <laughs> yeah. 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 So politeness, and that's a part of society, and Atticus's own dedication to raising his children well and being polite is an emphasis. So it could be that. It could be period appropriate. But I wonder if it has more to do with the fact that we are seeing the story through the eyes of children. And the adults in the picture are trying not to drag the kids' minds through things that they're not prepared for yet. And that is that says some things potentially about being a person in the world that are really intriguing to me because we're adults, the ones watching the movie, for whom the movie was made. We're grown-ups. And grown-ups are the people that the novel was written to as well. And so the fact that we are listening as Scout listens might have something to do with Harper Lee and then with the director of the film in partnership with her saying to us, everybody should be kids about this stuff. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Mm-hmm. I think that was that I hadn't really thought about the the fact that as you watch the movie you're in scout's shoes and the 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 movie maker skillfully puts you there with, yeah. in that with that silence with those so adults is protecting you as much as he's protecting scout. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which is what makes you cry the whole time, I think. <laughs> I I really think that scene um where he where Bob Ewell faces him on Tom Robinson's porch after the the killing really has a lot of that in it. Peck in does, Gregory Peck doesn't say anything. He just they're just staring at each other, and there's Jim in the front seat watching, and we are in the front seat watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. I, it also has the effect of hammering home the drama of the moment from an adult's perspective, and I I think that I, I mentioned that I think they telescoped the novel. What I mean is that since they had to choose to cherry pick essentially significant moments from the original novel in order to tell the story and omit omitting some really important moments at the same time, right? He's chosen those moments that feature in large part Atticus because really the story on the screen follows Atticus and basically tells the story of racism and the consequences of doing the virtuous thing, right? Or, yeah, or the difficulty of the doing difficulty the, yeah. of doing the the right thing, and um, we love Atticus for it um, because he embodies that kind of humaneness and virtue and adulthood, the maturity that we hope we will achieve, that everyone loves to love, you know. But it's just Atticus that we get. And this is different from the original novel. Certainly Atticus is featured in the novel as the father, and he's present in the background of the story and is serving a kind of iconic role, not only for the town in his defense of Tom Robinson, but also for the children, because Jim in particular is looking to him to see what manhood looks like. Mm -hmm. And Jim's coming of age, we get in the very first chapter of Lee's story, this statement about how Jim broke his arm. Listen to this. The story opens. When he was nearly 13, my brother Jim got his arm badly broken at the elbow. When it healed and Jim's fears of never being able to play football were assuaged, he was seldom self-conscious about his injury. His left arm was somewhat shorter than his right. When he stood or walked, the back of his hand was at right angles to his body, his thumb parallel to his thigh. He couldn't have cared less so long as he could pass and punt. 
when enough years had gone by to enable us to look back on them, we sometimes discuss the events leading to his accident. The question I always ask the kids when I teach this story is, why does Scout begin her narration by focusing on Jim? And I think the reason is that this is a story about Jim and then Scout on his coattails, if you will, coming of age. And the way they come of age is they're drugged through the muck of this horrible trial and made aware that all of the neighbors in, in their tiny little town where everybody knows everyone and has for generations have kind of a dark underbelly. So they, they come face to face with real human nature and then they're forced to confront it in themselves as their father calls them up to a standard that's a bit higher than, than they think they might be able to reach initially and shows them the virtuous way. But it's really, it's Jim and Scout's coming of age story. And the way that Lee tells this story, we see them move through childhood to adulthood. And we ask the question with them, what does it mean to be mature? And we ask the question with her, is it possible to become mature while still remaining innocent? Mm. No. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I agree. In the narrative, I think to some extent, they do maintain their maturity as Atticus does. Yeah, that's what I mean. Their innocence. Yes, they do maintain their innocence as does Atticus. Because remember, Atticus is their guide. And he thinks the best of people to the end. And he works as a lawyer defending the dregs of society most of the time. I mean, he does. What is it? Maudie Atkinson says he does the town's dirty work for them. Unpleasant. He does all their unpleasant jobs for them, and yet he maintains this like a persistent hopefulness in the face of the depravity that he sees all around him. And he will not, he refuses to think the worst of his neighbors. Well, even and though that's he's emphasized in the film, particularly more than the book, even when Atticus, um, it's like a turning point, Miss Maudie says to Jem, Your father is the one who, who was born to do our unpleasant work for us. Atticus has to deliver the news right after that, that Tom Robinson is dead and he's so upset. But what he says is we had such a good chance. We had such a good chance. And it's just a hopeful, it was a hopeful reading even after Tom Robinson's trial went so poorly. So I, I can see what you're saying. And I, I can even see the directorial choice to emphasize that quality of Atticus. The thing that brings him power in the story is this infinite hope in humanity being better today than it was yesterday. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. But weren't, but Missy, weren't you in the process of making a point about how that's the gist of the, of the novel and the gist of the film is something different or at least something not, not exactly the same. Something adjacent. I, what I think is that in a novel, you can tell more than one story at a time. It's easy to layer a well, easy is the wrong word, but it's possible (laughs) in a novel to layer stories in such a way as to like, when I first taught this story, one of the things that I did is I asked the kids, I said, we're going to do more than one plot chart of this story. We're not just going to chart the story from the perspective of say scout, but we're going to chart the story from the perspective of Atticus as though he were a protagonist and from Jim as though he were the protagonist. We're going to look at um, several different scenarios trying to come up with a good, strong answer to who's the protagonist of the story, looking at what each one of these characters wants 
and tracing that object to its tipping point, essentially, to see how the story resolves for each one of them and better understand what kind of themes arise, right? And it really did hold up. You could essentially view the story as a work in progress for Atticus, the father. What does he want? He wants to do what is right and get his children through this, preserving their innocence, right? Right. But what you so? But what you're saying though is that that that's harder to do in a film, or maybe even yeah, impossible. I think it's harder to do in a film because the medium, I think, really does require a simplification. You don't have all that internal dialogue that's going on. Um, there's not as much room for vignettes that reiterate the underlying symbolic idea. Yeah, I mean, I think a traditional film is a short story in terms yes. of the way it's written. Right? Yeah, it's a reduction. It has to be reductionistic. He had to cherry pick moments. So if you have read the story before and you go to that movie, you see him alluding to particular elements of the story. And if you've read it, it works. That moment and that illusion is filled out by your recollection of the story itself. And you go, oh, yes, I remember that scene. Or oh, I know what he's doing there. He's summarizing. Beautiful. But if you've never read the story... It's just that one line and it needs amplification, right? I don't think that you get the coming of age narrative nearly as strongly as you do in the story in the movie. It's just a story about racism and Atticus, the good guy, what it means to be virtuous, what it costs to be virtuous Mm -hmm. as seen through the eyes of his adoring children, right? The mockingbird element, the significance of innocence, the, the line about the mockingbird is retained. It's moved in the script to a different scene, but it is retained. It's a sin to kill a mockingbird because they don't ever do anything but sing their hearts out for us, right? And at the end of the story, it comes around again in the movie when right. Scout references it and says, I understand why we're going to tell it this way. It's because it would be like killing a mockingbird to say that Boo did it, right? So she gets it. We see it serves its purpose in the film. But in the book, the mockingbird motif is much richer and it serves to punctuate the coming of age story that's going on for the children. At the beginning of the story, there's the scene that's been omitted in the movie of Jim and Scout and the, the next door neighbor visiting boy Dill. Love um, that actor in the movie. Yes. Yeah, that yes. kid was great. Huge teeth. Yeah, they're playing out back. <laughs> in the book and they find a turtle and Jim suggests um, lighten a match under it. And it, he says, turtles can't feel. <laughs> he says, um, let's make that turtle come out uh, They're They're talking about how to get boo to come out of his house. And they say, let me think a minute. It's sort of like making a turtle come out. How's that? Asked Dill. strike a match under him. I told Jim, if he set fire to the Radley house, I was going to tell Atticus on him. <laughs> <laughs> Dill said striking a match under a turtle was hateful. Why well, ain't hateful? Just persuades him. It's not like you chunk him in the fire, Jim growled. Well, how do you know a match don't hurt him? Well, turtles can't feel stupid, said Jim. Well, were you ever a turtle, huh? So it starts with that, which gives us a good window into where Jim is in the maturing department. Being Read 10. Not. Right, he's 10. Yeah. He, he can't put himself in the other person's shoes yet. And that idea of putting yourself in another's shoes becomes really, really significant, symbolizing maturity in the story, in particular for Scout. But we see Jim is not there yet at the beginning of the story. Towards the end of the story, before the fateful walk 
and the attack by Yule on the children. There's this moment where Scout is playing on the floor and she finds a roly-poly bug. And she's just about to crush it when Jim says, stop, don't crush that bug. And she says, what are you talking about? You want me to save an insect? That's crazy. And he says, well, it never did nothing to you. And we see that he has, throughout the course of the story, as a result of everything that's been going on in his community and in his family, in regards to his father representing Robinson, he's kind of grown a heart. He's, he is suddenly able to see outside of himself and to consider things from another's perspective. And he's become a fierce champion of the little, the least, and the lost. And it's a beautiful moment. I argue with my students that it could be considered a climactic moment of sorts in the story, right. though that the attack is yet to come and the drama is certainly not over yet. But it definitely proves that he has come of age in a very real way. Scout's still coming along. She's still learning. And her moment in the sun doesn't come until after the attack when she uh, speaks with Atticus, as we mentioned before. So it seems to me that back to the comment about silence and, and lack of dialogue and doing things, doing things by representing them visually rather than explaining them. I think there is a moment like that in the film. And it's the moment when, when, Jem lets Scout in on the secret of the knothole and the things that have been left there. And it's heavily implied that he knows who's leaving them there also. And so rather than, rather than having a bunch of iterations of the Mockingbird image, which is all talking about, well, Tom Robinson and then also Boo Radley, they actually use Boo Radley. He's the Mockingbird and it's a film. And so we just have the one, we've got the one Mockingbird. And, but I think it serves the same purpose you're talking about. I, I don't know that they, that they really omit that that coming of age element. I think it's there. I don't see it as strongly. I, I think you can find it if you've read the story, but I don't think it's what leaps off the screen when you're watching it. Although there is just a beautiful moment of movie making where Boo Radley goes over to a sleeping gem who's recovering from his arm being set. And he's got, he's hand in hand with Scout. And she says, you can pet him if you want, Mr. Mr. Arthur. If you if he was awake, you couldn't. He wouldn't let you. But he's asleep, so you can pet him. And it's the scene. It takes a long time. It's a moment of silence. And Boo Radley very, very slowly reaches out and he pets Jem's hair. And then he kind of holds his hand over his face for a moment and blesses him. Mm -hmm. And then with that, Scout, you know, walks Mr. Arthur back to his house. And it's this beautiful moment. But that scene doesn't have any words in it. I was so powerfully moved, though. And maybe, Mom, maybe what you're saying is that I was so powerfully moved because I've read the book and I understand the image to the bottom. But it seemed very much to be a moment where one mockingbird blesses another, where Boo looks at the innocent whose innocence he has saved. Yes. And says, basically, without any words, I bless you and go on and, and live in the innocence that I've preserved for you. Yeah. I thought that I was... I, Totally thought it communicated. In the original story, you would it would have more heft because we understand that he's a mockingbird, not just because he's a recluse, but we understand how he got there. I think in the movie version, we just hear kind of a, a legend about how he stabbed his dad with the scissors when he was walking by and got sent to the asylum. But we hear a much more animated account of that in Lee's own words. Yeah, we, absolutely. We get That's more of a true. picture. As and to, I don't think any of us are trying to say that, that no. the film comes anywhere near the depth or the definitely not the perfection of one of the great American novels. All that we're trying to say is that given the tools of the medium, 
I think that stuff does come through. I, I think even if you hadn't read the novel, that moment that Megan just talked about is still going to move you to tears. You know what? Let me just jump in here. There's a, there is an observation about Megan's comment about Boo Radley blessing Jim while he sleeps. Mm-hmm. That is a visual thing. I don't think the novel anywhere says, you know, his hand paused on Jim's head as if in blessing or anything no, like that. Uh-uh. That's a, that's a, a movie making technique. That's a theatrical technique. That's a physical visual statement that the astute moviegoer is tuned to notice. Right. Because the moviegoer is looking for physical representations. He's looking for poses and yes. stances yes. and blocking and that kind of thing. Choreography as a part of the, as a part of the medium. I didn't notice that in that scene, the way you just described it, but it's very clearly there. And that opens up another line of understanding of the fact that these two media are, are they're different. They're very different and they, they work with different materials and they have, they each have their glories. Go ahead. Megan, but sorry. one of the things that we were discussing over the past couple episodes is the way in which a director is in conversation with the author and a good movie adaptation is respectful of the central theme and tries with new tools, sometimes additional tools beyond those available to an author to communicate the same idea. And I definitely saw him doing that in that scene. He, the mockingbird is present. Interesting. Well, I think I he's trying. Her. I agree with you. I think he's really trying to utilize the symbol that Lee gave him and point out mockingbirds in the story and create a kind of a kind of empathetic relationship between Boo and the children. Yeah. Uh, we mm-hmm. see him trying to preserve their innocence because his own was taken from him in yeah. a lot of ways. But I don't think that we get to see how his own was taken from him, except that we see his father, what's his name? I can't remember. Nathan. Nathan Radley, yeah, being kind of sour and foul and like stopping up the hole where he's leaving the kids little trinkets and things. It's maybe implied, but... I think that it means more to viewers who've actually read the story and, and know what's going on there. Interesting. I, I think maybe there were, uh, I noted the omitted scenes from the book. It, they omitted the ladies tea party at the Finches with Aunt Alexandra presiding. They and, actually omitted Aunt Alexandra's character altogether. Yes, they yep. did. They omitted she her gone. altogether. So the whole, see, Aunt Alexandra was doing for Scout what Atticus was doing for his son, right? Very levels of success. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, so anyway, she's just omitted altogether. It skips the poignant scene of the burning in Miss Maudie's house. That one when Boo covers her up with with the blanket when she's not paying attention. She just I loved. The the I loved how that scene ended in the book. I know it's off topic. Jem Jem turns to her and with horror and says, "If you'd have turned around, you would have seen him." <laughs> it just was so vivid. It was such a kid thing to say. Yeah, but yeah, I, it was a not beautiful, the movie. A, a beautiful scene that be, that adds it contributes to the development of Boo's character in the story. Right, all of the commentaries on the neighbors again are telescoped. We don't really get to see to hear about the generational effect <laughs> of all the different families living in the same town for so wow. long and the intermarriage going on, so that everybody kind of knows the the particular attributes of each family and the sins, the propensities to sin in each family <laughs> that become a part of their character. Right. Because all that has to, when you're making a movie, all of that has to be setting. It has to be the way, the way you, the way you build. Well, it's just too much. Maybe. Or it has to be the way you build the town. It has to be the way that you build the town and the way that you set up the shot. And I don't think that it was possible for them to go the final mile with Lee 
because in the story, she takes this whole coming of age story and offers it as a, a kind of, I, I think the deeper theme in the story goes beyond the coming of age of children and the preservation of the children's innocence. And it, it addresses the coming of age of the South mm. and asks the question, can the South come of age and still retain its innocence? And I don't think that the movie can address that. I don't think it does address that. And one of the reasons why is it has removed that communal element to some degree from the story. It just wasn't able to put it all in there. And so we don't see it happen. It's not, there's a nod given to it again when Atticus has a, um, says we had such a good chance and remains hopeful. But I think what comes through, if anything, is that Atticus being representative of the mature man has certainly retained his innocence and his hopefulness in spite of being an adult in this fallen world, right? I don't know that it it goes far enough to help us see the potential for the South to come of age as well. Interesting. And what you're saying is that what would be necessary in order to bring up that conversation is a a deep, detailed treatment of the various relationships that make it a community. Yes. In other words, the Miss Maudie Atkinson, the and Aunt the fact Alexandra, that, the Miss Stephanie Crawford. And the cetera, fact that Walter Cunningham's father, Mr. Cunningham, whom we already mentioned, Scout addresses from the steps of the jailhouse that night, who eventually, in response to her, tells the guys, let's go home, and leaves without lynching Tom Robinson, that he is the one guy, Mm -hmm. he is the one guy who sits on that jury in the courthouse that day that doesn't vote unanimously with everybody else. He, he, he doesn't just throw his hat in with his peers, but they're out two, two and a half hours, I think, debating about whether or not Tom should be considered guilty after it's indubitably uh, proven by Atticus in forceful ways before the entire court and the jury that uh, Tom Robinson is absolutely innocent and that the crime was committed by Mayella Yule's father. Right. Um, you know, that, that comes out in the courtroom, but even still he's found guilty. And the fact that Cunningham was the one that nearly hung the jury is significant. They had a real chance. And why? Because his heart was moved by a mockingbird, right? He was forced through the presence of the mockingbird to watch himself thinking, and it began to make a mature man of him. Yeah, I agree with you. It's beautiful. That doesn't come through in the movie. We don't even hear about the fact that he's the reason that they were out for two and a half hours. So what you're telling me is that, the, in your opinion, the best literary film adaptation you have ever seen is but a pale shadow. Yes. Of the novel. <laughs> are we think, really shocked? Does anybody think she think? was going to say anything else? <laughs> no, no. None of us are shocked. I just want to put a fine point on it. That's what I do. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and the reason the reason I'm saying this is not because of any fault of the director or any fault of the actors. Again, I think it was artfully done, but as beautifully done as it is, I think the medium of film doesn't allow as much attention to the symbol of the mockingbird, to the details of the original story. It necessarily cherry picks and alludes to things that really needed amplification or Lee wouldn't have amplified on them in the first place. And so the novel is much more brilliant than the movie adaptation, though the movie adaptation is lovely. I feel like what I want to say is that that's a lot of that is wrapped up in the fact that it is an adaptation and that the medium of 
of words is different than visual. Yes. Yeah, yes. But that doesn't mean that the visual medium is necessarily less than if if you're we're talking about a film that isn't an adaptation, they actually have their own language that they can work with. I agree. Uh, it, like just like a painting, right? The visual element lends itself to symbols and sure. I, mean, I have seen that really well done in film. So so it's by contrast that I think yes, the film has I to totally lose. agree with you. Absolutely. I think an artist goes to work in a particular genre on purpose. And when Lee did this story, she didn't originally create it as a film. She wrote a novel. So we're talking about, I mean, this whole, the whole point of this season is the, is the subject of literary adaptations yes. to film. So it sounds like today we're landing on an idea that there is necessarily a difficulty inherent in, of course, in the genre of literary yeah. adaptation, right? There's a necessarily a difficulty which Missy's uncovering here. I love Emily's point, though. I think it's good for us to say on the air in this season in particular that we're not down on movies uh, as opposed to books. We think that film is a wonderful art form and not not secondary necessarily stories, just because we're the book people. For sure. Yeah. And what I would also say and this, I might get squawking here, but what I would also say is that it isn't true that 100% in, in 100% of cases where a novel has been adapted to the screen, the novel is better. There, there's a long a list as long as your arm of great movies that you watch and that receive Oscars and are on 100 greatest movies of all time lists that you later find out, oh, my word, that was based on a novel. I've never heard of the novel. Yeah, that's because the novel blew. Right. But I had a great idea in <laughs> yes. there somewhere. And some director came along and said, way better suited to my medium. I got well, it. Yeah, for example, I, we, read, I remember after I saw the first season of Grant Jester. There you go. The, the television season. Great I went and yeah. bought example. the books that it was written. Were um, you bummed? <laughs> oh my gosh. They weren't anything like as good. Oh, as so the, as there's as James the, Norton again. He comes yeah, back. James Norton, mm. James Norton comes right. back. Right. I mean, the truth, is, the truth is, we are talking about To Kill a Mockingbird today. Of course. We are. We're talking yeah. about a, a nearly impossible project. Adapt uh -huh. the 20th century American novel. And everybody agrees the they did the best yeah. job Although, they ever could have. Oh, of course. I want to call Nobody's back to tried something ever again. Ian said sorry, earlier Ian. that it's, uh, it's an interesting time right now because a film is a short story. He said that today, but mm -hmm. previously he said something to the effect of, series tv series are more like novels they have more room yeah. and we're in a period of time right now where things that were novels that were adapted to film are suddenly being adapted to series long-form television to long-form yeah, television and it's interesting instead. to see how they're able it, it it's better i think yeah I think in some cases it really is it. in some of the very ways that missy is talking about right Long form TV is better than than the the feature length movie. Yeah, like room room for more than one narrative, room for yes, recurring and it symbols. Yes, lets them include more yeah more motifs, and you know they don't have to to excise so many elements of the story in order to get through it on time. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really true. I love it. I I my my doorway into this whole conversation is is long form television. I got swept off my feet in college by a couple of just fantastic ten or ten or twelve episode miniseries and thought oh, this is everything I want. It's a movie, but it's deep like a novel. Let's yeah, go. Yeah. Anybody ever read Mario Puzo's The Godfather? I haven't, but I was going to bring that up. <laughs> it's not the greatest novel of all time. And it's all you have to say. It's great, <laughs> but it's not the greatest novel of all time. The screen adaptation is the best movie of all time. Yeah. 
there you it's, go. It's literally either <laughs> The Godfather or Citizen Kane in a hundred percent of other critics' opinions. Yeah, or The Godfather Part <laughs> Two. Really, yeah. yeah. So there, that's a great. I mean, that makes the point we're trying to make here. Yeah, I think absolutely. Well, you guys yeah. talked about crying when Arthur reaches down, Boo reaches down and and blesses Jim. When I cried is in the novel when Scout is standing on the steps of the Radley house and uh, there's the little montage um, at the end of the story, uh, her remembering elements of her own life, her own childhood over the past couple of years uh, from the perspective of Boo Radley, who she now knows has loved them and has protected them, you know, and I'm just, can I read it? Do you mind if I sure. read it? Sure. You don't <laughs> yes. have to ask. This is your podcast. Do whatever you okay, want. Okay, I'm going to read it. <laughs> so buckle up. <laughs> it goes like this. Neighbors bring food with death and flowers with sickness and little things in between. Boo is our neighbor. He gave us two soap dolls, a broken watch and chain, a pair of good luck pennies, and our lives. But neighbors give in return. We never put back into the tree what we took out of it. We had given him nothing, and it made me sad. I turned to go home. Streetlights winked down the street all the way to town. I'd never seen our neighborhood from this angle. There were Miss Maudie's, Miss Stephanie's. There was our house. I could see the porch swing. Miss Rachel's house was beyond us, plainly visible. I could even see Mrs. Dubose's. I looked behind me. To the left of the brown door was a long, shuttered window. I walked to it, stood in front of it, and turned around. In the daylight, I thought... You could see to the post office corner. Daylight. In my mind, the night faded. It was daytime, and the neighborhood was busy. Miss Stephanie Crawford crossed the street to tell the latest to Miss Rachel. Miss Maudie bent over her azaleas. It was summertime, and two children scampered down the sidewalk toward a man approaching in the distance. The man waved, and the children raced each other to him. It was still summertime, and the children came closer. A boy trudged down the sidewalk, dragging a fishing pole behind him. A man stood waiting with his hands on his hips. Summertime and his children played in the front yard with their friend, enacting a strange little drama of their own invention. It was fall, and his children fought on the sidewalk in front of Mrs. Dubose's. The boy helped his sister to her feet, and they made their way home. Fall, and his children trotted to and fro around the corner, the day's woes and triumphs on their faces. They stopped at an oak tree, delighted, puzzled, apprehensive. Winter and his children shivered at the front gate, silhouetted against a blazing house. Winter and a man walked into the street, dropped his glasses, and shot a dog. Summer and he watched his children's heart break. Autumn again and Boo's children needed him. Atticus was right. One time he said, you never really know a man until you stand in his shoes and walk around in them. Just standing on the Radley porch was enough. The streetlights were fuzzy from the fine rain that was falling, and as I made my way home, I felt very old. But when I looked at the tip of my nose, I could see fine, misty beads. But looking cross-eyed made me dizzy, so I quit. <laughs> as I made my way home, I thought, what a thing to tell Jim tomorrow. He'd be so mad he missed it, he wouldn't speak to me for days. As I made my way home, I thought Jim and I would get grown but there wasn't much else left for us to learn, except possibly algebra. How can you put that on a screen? They tried. We got the little bit about um, neighbors bringing food with death and flowers with sickness and Booby and the neighbor. But 
You didn't get the rest of that montage. Well, it had to have been voiceover. Right? You didn't get it so that it turned and eventually she saw that they were his children. You didn't get the part where she said, I'm all grown up now, but yet she's retained her innocence because she's still looking cross-eyed at the mist on the end of her nose. All those things drive home the larger theme of the story, and there's just no way to sum all that up in a picture. It's too rich. Well, what a great problem to have. We have one of the great novels ever written and one of the best movies ever made. Absolutely. On the same set of thematic ideas. We are all the richer for that, I suppose. We are indeed. Yeah, we are. Well, you guys, thank you so much for your thoughts. This has been an um, enthralling episode. Mom, you came loaded for bear, and I'm so glad about it. That was really <laughs> wonderful. No, you can't change me. <laughs> They're chatting in the we chat box laughing. Anyway. You can't change her. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all, and thank you listeners for joining us, and we will see you around for another great discussion in a week or so. Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll come by the Bibliophiles Facebook group and tell us which book to movie adaptation you think is best. Next week, we'll be stirring the pot with a discussion of the recent adaptation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and we'll be talking about whether or not it's okay for directors to disagree with the themes of the book they're adapting. Until then, happy reading, everyone.